make you so special? Why did he bless you? Think about it. I woke up this morning. I woke up this morning. Got a smile when I say that shit. Ah! Good morning. Go. Well, we are live. We're live with Joel Gators. Woo! Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This this dude. Well, we've actually been talking for probably. It's been an hour and forty minutes. I looked at the. Oh times. wow. Yeah. No. <laughs> we we've just been sitting around talking before the pod for a while now. So it feels like <laughs> we've been live for a while. Just hanging out. <laughs> well, dude, you are a uh, you're a lethal weapon. <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far, but you know, I do have some ninja skills. Yep, yep. Well, yeah, I mean, any any role that like, you put me on my ass in like probably a minute, then a minute, and I mean, but you also have to remember, like, if you add in how much time I've been wrestling, I've been doing martial arts like twelve years now, like since I was fourteen. Right. So I would hope to God. I would true. hope to God. True, true. Like not as not not being a dick or anything, but just no, no, not at all, not at all. But th- that's like my thing when some people are like, "Damn, you do that quickly." I'm like, I, I like yeah, but at the same time, like, like some people take it personally, and I'm just like, I've been doing not this, but like I've been training as long as like our head coach almost. Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it's I would hope to God I can like, you know deal with people and I was, I was making that claim to add like credibility to it versus because you're, you're totally right like i if i like took that personal myself i'm convinced i'm comparing myself to a, a beginner who's I, i've only done two months of jujitsu versus somebody who's been doing it for well how long have you been doing jujitsu for because you wrestled before then started jujitsu right so i wrestled for the thing like nine or ten years and then i started doing jujitsu two years ago Okay. Okay. Yeah. What do you prefer? I don't. I, I don't think I really prefer either. Like, I don't have a preference on any martial art, honestly. Like, just perks to each one, kind of deal. Yeah. Like, I mean, okay. If you follow like the super traditional schools of certain martial arts, like, yeah. I mean, I would say I like the philosophy of jujitsu a lot, but I mean, at the same time, like. Part of what, like, and, and a lot of that has to do with jujitsu. There's comp- competition; it's competitive and everything. But overall, the mindset is a lot more relaxed. Like it's about flowing, being smooth. In wrestling, you are taught to explode, throw. Like you are taught to be. You're basically trained to be a savage. Like okay. Like you like. You can't finish that takedown. Like, this guy is stuffing your hips. You aren't driving it hard enough. You might also have the technique wrong, but at the same time, like, I mean, like, there's a guy who, there was a part of, like, I guess my first introduction to jiu-jitsu at all was this guy named Dakota, who my, like, senior year of college wrestling, he joined the team just to, like, try it out. Because uh, he'd done jujitsu before, and he like talked with our coach. He'd like wanted to learn some wrestling, and like I, I don't think he was quite ready for it because like in turn like physically ready for it because I, I don't think he understood the difference because like he mentioned to me one time he's like you know jujitsu is like a lot more technical but wrestlers are just so fucking strong right okay well I mean and that's like the thing is 
like you're trained to do everything like very powerfully like okay. part of that is through leverage and technique same as jujitsu but like in wrestling training there would be a whole like hour of practice that was devoted to lifting and conditioning right. you know? okay. in jujitsu like it, depending on what academy you go to a lot of times you end up really doing most of that on your own in wrestling it was like no, you're going to be here, and you're going to do this. So does weight class matter more in wrestling, then? I would say yes. Okay. Like, just... It, it's really hard to say what, like... Because... Okay, in a wrestling tournament... Like, in jiu-jitsu, they do absolute in tournaments, which is, like, basically... I, depending on what tournament, either the champions or top three from each individual weight class all go into a bracket. Right. In wrestling, they don't do that. Okay. And part of the reason is, like, I think twofold. One is, like, wrestling tournaments are a bit more brutal in my mind sometimes. Like, you could not get through a day of a wrestling tournament and then, like, go do a whole nother bracket. It would be... Well, you could, but it would be really hard. Like, really hard. Just strenuous on the body? Or? Yeah, well, especially, like, collegiate or anything above level wrestling, it's so high-paced. Really? Like, okay. when you're locking up collar, t- collar ties on the guys, you're basically punching them in the back of the head with your forearm. It's not like you're just... Like, it, it is a brutal sport. You will come out of matches with black eyes and, like, most of the skin on your forehead rubbed out. Wow. Like, it, it's... <laughs> It's a whole different animal. Like that's, I think, the biggest difference for me competitively wrestling versus jujitsu is wrestling is a lot more of a vicious sport. Wrestling, in terms of like the mindset, like basically the dog with a bloody mouth mindset, that's a lot more MMA, a lot more wrestling of a mindset. Like jujitsu is a bit more relaxed. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, I, like, I even remember in my first MMA fight, Mop made a point to mention to me. He's like, you got to go faster pace. This isn't like jujitsu. High pace, high volume, high intensity. Like For MMA? Yes. Okay. Well, and like, uh, jujitsu, you can kind of take your time and work through the positions. Uh-huh. A lot harder to do in wrestling. A lot harder to do in wrestling. But I mean... At the same time, I don't think one is better than the other. I've always, yeah, I've always been curious about that. Wrestling taught me how to tough out shit that I really don't want to more than anything I've ever gone through in my life. Yeah. Like, I remember one time in college for, like, our coach was like, all right, we're doing this community service project. We literally were, like, they were clearing a path for a local state park. We were hauling fucking full trees. Like, individually, we were hauling full trees, like, out of the fucking woods. Oh, what? When it was really fun. Because, like, I, well, but the thing is, think about this. We trained so much and so fucking hard, that actually felt like a rest day to us. Oh, I believe it. Like, I really believe that. And there were other people there helping to volunteer, like, 20 or 30 of them. They were hauling, like, br- they were pulling up, like, branches, bundled of sticks. Literally, were pulling out whole trees. That's crazy. <laughs> Like, like full-grown trees. Yeah. Wow. Because our coach was like, save the wood. I want it for kindling. <laughs> well, and like, I mean, so, yeah. That was, and like I said, that was like 
he considered that giving us the day off. Wow. Yeah. Like, That's a different type of athlete. I like it. I like, like it. Like, my first day of college wrestling practice, uh-huh. like, this was just, a, we were just doing a lifting session. So, we're getting through the lift, everyone's about done, and I still don't, he'd been bitching at some of us for talking during lifting too much, and I, like, knowing my coach, okay, maybe the guy that this that he got pissed at us all over was talking a lot, but at the same time, he just wanted an excuse to make us work more. We're literally almost done with this lift, and he's like, all right, and this guy's name was Helmut, like the German name Helmut. Hel- Helmut? Helmut. Helmut. H-E-L-M-U-T. Okay. He went by Alec. He's actually a really nice guy, a really great guy. I learned, I worked a lot with him, learned a lot with him, grew a lot with him over the course of wrestling, but yeah... Unfortunate family name for for being a guy because you know we give each other massive amounts of shit for anything we can think of. Right, right. But yeah, Especially being within a team, I can, yeah. Oh god. Uh, but anyway, so like our coach just yells at this guy. He's like, "All right, that's it. Helmet was fucking talking too much. So now everyone get a fucking plate weight." Uh, so he had us all, and this was on a ninety-eight degree day. Grab a 45-pound plate, except for Helmet. And he's like, except for you, Helmet, grab the 100-fucking-pounder. Because we had 200-pound plates, and he had to carry one. So he made us run a mile carrying these plates right after, like, pretty much finishing a collegiate wrestling lift. And Dude, then... that would be just straight shin splits, like, immediately. Wow. He didn't... You think he gave a shit? Yeah, true, true. Like this is that's the thing. It's like that's that's the that's the mindset of wrestling. Is like, like you know, like if you had said something to him, like, "Oh, coach, this hurts," he'd just be like, "Good." <laughs> like that's that's the mindset of wrestling. Kind of like, like we were talking about earlier with the Russians. Just that mentality. Just just fight through it. Don't complain about it. That's why Russians are really good at wrestling and fighting, man. <laughs> like. That's why some of the best wrestlers in the world, some of the best fighters in the world, still to this day, come out of Russia, and it's been that way for hundreds of years. It's going to continue to be that way. Like, for real. Well, they, they also just, like, biologically seem bigger over there. Well, that also has to do with the fact that they have one of the most developed doping programs in the world. They had an agency whose entire job was to, like, basically keep the World Anti-Doping Association from testing their athletes positive. No way. No, yeah, like the Russians... Just to prevent that from happening, really. Yeah, well, not to prevent them from test. To be clear, not to prevent them from testing, but from testing positive. Okay, okay. Like, the the Russian... The Russian, like... Their national athletics is like an actual government ministry. Like, you know, like our Olympic athletes are are like government-run programs, but like... Maybe I'm wrong on this, but... We don't have a guy that's, like, specifically, like, you know, minister of Olympics, minister of international sports. Right. Like, you know, the programs are all a little bit more like... But they actually have, like, a minister for sports, and they had, like, they had an actual doping... Like, you know, their anti-doping agencies, they had a doping agency. <laughs> yeah. Unlike, it was... This just to counteract, just so they're... Wow, so their athletes are... Pretty much performing so the, an optimal performance on an... Constantly. Wow. Deceptive. Yes. Very Elaborate, deceptive. Elaborately deceptive, though. Very much so. Like, they had, like... And this wasn't, like... This wasn't, like, a bullshit, like, operate... Like, 
They had some of their best PhD, like doctors, PhDs, everything working to make this happen. What's the motive? Profit or just winning? Winning. Pride? Okay. Russian, like, I don't like. That, that's the thing, like, when I was telling you about earlier, like, why, despite the fact that the Russian army would literally send out their soldiers with sticks, why people did not like fighting them, is like, think about the balls it takes, even if you're being told to, to charge at someone who's shooting at you with a stick. It, it just, it, I couldn't even imagine that mindset because anybody I know would just, they would just say, no, like, I'm gonna die for this. You know what I mean? They would question it too much. Well, in, in the Russians, it's not that they didn't question it, like, they're just like, it's almost just like in their blood to fight tooth and nail. Okay. Like, there's this one, like, famous... Sounds like a Spartan mentality. Pretty much. Pretty much, like... They're just, like... And, I mean, also, to a certain degree, this had to do with their commanders just not giving a flying fuck. Right, right. But, like, their mindset is, like... I remember one time, I taught... I... It was in the office of my dentist. And there was this one picture, and I thought it was just some random picture. And then this old guy was wearing, like, a World War II, like, vet... Or, no... He, he actually, he wasn't wearing a hat or anything, but, like, he's just like, oh, they got that wrong on that picture. And I'm like, how do you know? He's like, because I've been to that bridge. And it turned out he had been a World War II veteran that was active, like, in Europe, in, in like, Central Europe during the Battle of the Bulge. And at one point... Like, so this is World War II? Yes. Okay. And, the like, the Battle of the Bulge was basically, like, that was the final German attack. Okay. That, like, it... It was a massive attempt at an offensive by Germany, and they were trying to push out their territory, and I can't remember where exactly it was, but why it's called the Battle of the Bulge, is basically they start, like, their borders, like, drawn here, they started pushing out and formed this pocket of expanded territory. And, uh, this guy, though, that I was talking to, he said, like, during the bulge, like, we ended up, like, just kind of while we were driving around towns, like, we found this one Russian guy that had just gotten stranded from the Russian army. Now, whether or not he was stranded or a deserter is another thing, because due to the fact that they would send you out with sticks, desertion was common in the Russian army. Right, right. <laughs> like, uh, but, like, he would say, like, I remember one time when we, like, found these two Nazi guys. He just walked up to them, picked them up by their skulls, and clunked them together. Like, he, he didn't have any guns or anything, so that's what he... Well, no, he just, like... Well, I mean, at that point, they gave him a gun because he was traveling with them. Okay, okay. But, look, I, I don't know if he had a gun, but I'm assuming at that point, if he was traveling with them, they probably gave him some kind of what gun. What a badass, dude. But, yeah, dude, he just picks up these two knots and he clunks his skull together. <laughs> he's just... And this old guy's telling me, he's like, that Russian's the toughest son of a bitch I ever met. Like... It's... It's just in their culture, man. Right, like, right. That's insane. Yeah, dude. That's weird because I always, whenever I think of German people, I always think of their men being, like, massive as well. Russians have... Russians have the fight tenacity of Germans without, the, without necessarily the logical limits behind it. Like, t German generals would never use the tactic of, like, let's send wave after wave after wave and eventually they're going to quit... Because, like, they're just like, oh, we've got to save our troops for, like... Or, it, they're going to think more long-term. Well, not even... It, it's not even long-term. It's just the fact that, like, 
Germans are very logical people. They're uh-huh. very, like, okay, a good example I like to give of people of what German society is like and how I'd compare it with like... So when I was in college, I spent a semester in Florence. And Florence is like basically sent central kind of like beginnings of northern Italy. Okay. But in Florence... And pretty much throughout Italy, except for the far north, where they basically consider the people they're Germans, uh, you are at a crosswalk. People are probably going to be crossing the street somewhere else. Like it, Italians just cross the street. A lot of jaywalking. A lot of less jay- structure. Less structure. Yeah, a lot of jaywalking, and like, say the like sign is up for like, don't walk. They don't give a shit. <laughs> like they'll just go. Like if if the coast is clear, they go. Right. It doesn't matter if there's a crosswalk, if the sign is up for them to walk, whatever. In Germany, I was standing at a crosswalk. Not one person, not one, would go before the light turned. Really? Not one. It's those little things that you pick up on, those little cues. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, the, the Germans have a very, like, almost self-imposed kind of, like... It's really weird, like... <laughs> I don't even I don't even know how to put it, but it, it like I said, it's it's a very like they're very logical people. The Russians are fucking crazy, and I mean that in like a good way. But like, the Russians are just fucking nuts. They will like they will do whatever. Like that's the, maybe maybe ruthless. Just I would well, ruthless. Well, I wouldn't even say like. Well, okay, yeah. If you get on the wrong side of them, yeah, ruthless. Like. Whatever adjective you want to pick, they're uh-huh. basically the honey badger of the, like, nations of people in my mind. Okay, what do you mean by that? Honey badger is an animal that's about the size of, like, four of one of your little dogs. Uh-huh. Like, maybe they top out at, like, 30 to 40 pounds. Right. They'll, th- for snacks, they will eat lethally venomous snakes and live beehives. Wow. There's, like, video of them just, like... Oh, I've seen that, because they, they, yeah, like, uh... They walk up to groups of lions and just start fighting them. <laughs> really? Like, they, they will walk, if, like, yeah, when there's... There's a video of some guy commentating on YouTube, he's like, honey badgers don't give a fuck, they don't care, they don't give a fuck. Well, and, like, this, like... Oh, yeah, like, that's a video, like, why people know, like, have heard the honey badger, and that's the re- like, that guy is, like, not kidding, like, he, it, it's a really funny video, but, like, there's some, like, so crazy anatomical thing I love about the honey badger and why it can, like, fight lions, because, like, <laughs> you'll see, like, in videos where, like, the lion will fucking bite its neck and it'll just be like, how is that thing still alive? But the crazy thing is, like, our skin, like, I can't really wiggle my arm around inside of my skin or any part of my body, really. The honey badger's skin is pretty much attached to their body only at one point. So to a large degree, like, they can fully rotate their body within inside their own, like, from within their own skin. It's almost like a shell at that point. Well, on top of that, their fur is so thick that, like, it's basically like trying to bite through Kevlar. Like, just a super tightly woven material. Okay, okay. Or, like... Yeah. Reminds me of, like, a, almost like a cloak. Like, a very... Yeah. Strong, kind of, uh... They're, they're, cloak. Yeah, their skin... Like, 
Their fur, their fur is basically like so matted and thick, it's hard to bite through. Their skin is like leather. They can move around within their skin. So even if you bite through their through their fur and their skin, you're not necessarily even going to hit a vital organ. Well, what if you're shooting with like a high powered like bow and arrow? I mean, at that point, like. Okay, yeah. Okay, you're talking teeth, though, okay? But yeah, like, if you spear the thing, like, if right. you spear the thing, it's probably going to be pretty damn hurt. I'm just like, I'm pushing the limits, yeah. I mean, like, no, I get what you're saying. But, like, I mean, in terms of, like, natural defense, like, they are able to fight animals that humans don't have the natural tools. To, like I said, like, they eat venomous snakes, and it's not like the venom doesn't affect them. Like, they just have developed such strong processing systems for the venom. Basically, what they'll do, like, when they eat a really lethally venomous snake, uh -huh. is they'll, like, they'll nap for, like, a couple hours. And then they're fine. And it's, like, it doesn't hurt them. They just, like, they just rest, process the venom, and they're good. It just takes a little nap. Yeah. Wow. And, like, okay, like how I said they eat live bee, they, like, snack on live beehives, how they can do it, because you got to think, like, there can be thousands of bees in a hive, and when you crawl into a hive, they will all attack you. They oh, will all... Because, like... That interdependent thinking, man. It's like, attack this predator, attack the invader. It'll just sit there, because they can't sting through his fur. Protect the motherland! <laughs> like, for real. For real. And, wow. But the thing is, like, they can't sting through its fur, so it just eats... It, it either eats the whole damn thing, or just... It'll eat... Until it's done. All these little kamikaze bees are coming in, flying in, attacking. Well, That'd be frustrating. <laughs> well, like, even, like, even though, like, there's some that can sting through it, it doesn't even really feel it. Why is that? Just because of the way, it, like, because of the way its skin is designed, it's so leathery, like. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I guess if they break through, they're not breaking through 100%. They're not. In, in theory. They're not really breaking through that deep. There aren't, like,. It doesn't affect their nervous system the same. It's they are a wonder of anatomy in terms of natural defenses. Okay. And also, just like the other thing I love about honey badgers is that they are one of like they don't really care. They're in in the animal kingdom. There is like literally there are a few things they will truly run away from. If they feel like they have to fight a pack of hyenas, they will fight a pack of hyenas. Wow. Like, and there are videos of, like, online, like... What about, like, a gorilla? It does, like, if they are threatened, like, until they are damn near life, like... Unless they're about to die, a honey badger usually won't, won't run away from a fight. Like, like, if you see a honey badger running away, it's probably, like... Okay, a couple more... It's not like, oh, I'm hurt pretty bad. It's like, oh, I'm gonna die if I take a lot more of this. Right, right. Like, it's... It's a very... Insane animal. That's crazy that the, the fight or flight is so different compared to us. Well, because, like, you have to realize, like, they live in a land of lions and hyenas. Like, they have to be. It's it's the way they have to be. It's kind of like how Russians live in a land. Like, Russia is one of the coldest places on Earth. Like, even the southern parts of Russia are not exactly warm, you know? Right, right. Like, so... And, like, think about it, a nation of people that, like, they have, so many people have tried to invade Russia. So many people have tried to invade Russia. It has been the downfall of, like, two of the most powerful emperors in world, or in modern world history. Napoleon, okay, it has been the downfall of 
Napoleon, uh, freaking Kaiser Ma- Kaiser Maxwell, or no Kaiser Wilhelm, the one that was the leader of Germany during World War One, okay. and Hitler. L- literally, like s- there are like so many military endeavors, like wars, just general expansion plans, have ended with I'm gonna go invade Russia. And it doesn't work, right? Because that's where we're, that's really where Hitler fucked up. Like, yes. Like everybody likes to say, like, uh, what's the famous Hitler quote? Like, whenever the whenever the uh, Japanese bombed us on Pearl Harbor Day, uh, the, Hitler said something like, "Don't." Before he did it, he said something like, "Don't awake the sleeping beast," referring to America. But like, where he really messed up was trying to invade Russia. And wasn't it the climate that played such a role then? Well, it's always what's played such a role because Russia is Russia has pretty much always used the same tactic. Uh huh. Like, and I mean, they used they used the same tactic with Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm, and Hitler, which is as soon as they start advancing, fight enough battles to keep pulling them into your territory. Uh huh. But as you go burn everything behind you. As you give up ground, don't leave anything behind for them to take. Any resources they could possibly use. They destroyed. Really? Okay. Like, Russia basically went scorched earth policy on itself. On what they would do, because they had so much land area, it's not like large influxes of people would really mess with things. It's It's not like like they had nowhere to go. Right. Because, like... Even though it is finite, there's so much of it, it doesn't really matter. Like, like Russia, way more than almost any other country, could afford to give up land. Right, right, true. Like, and especially European countries, because Russia, at the time, was about the size of Europe. So, you know... Like, no more, honestly. Yeah, so, I mean, like... And this is this can all, this can be said of all three of those people. So pick one, and probably several other. Well, not probably, definitely several other people I'm forgetting about. But like, what they do? So they fight. Like I said, they fight little battles, keep pulling you into the territory, destroy everything you could take out of that territory, and then they leave. So they they basically leave like sniper and friggin' like, like you know. Like raid groups behind to, to just pick. slowly take them off, pick yeah, them off. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And by the time they got, and basically they they would do it in such a pace that by the time, like they would get really deep into Russia, and then the winter would hit. Right. And that's when everything changes because up until then, the soldiers are fighting on fairly equal terms mm-hmm. because the. Because Napoleon's army, the German army, either time, a much more like calculated, precise, tactical army that has better technological equipment, but they're not used to fighting in fucking frigid cold temperatures. Exactly. Their te- their technology isn't designed to work in the freezing cold. Well, their like- uniforms probably aren't. No, for that either. No, like Hitler's army didn't bring winter uniforms. Neither did Napoleon's, and I can't. I'm almost damn sure probably Kaiser Wilhelm's didn't either. Wow. But like, well, I mean, like, what their concept of what the Russian winter was? Because this was a time before you could like look up temperatures, really. Right. Like you had no- even World War Two. Even World War Two, man. But, but with World War Two, there are so many traces of that that truth and that that failure that everybody failed to conquer because of this and Hitler didn't take that into consideration whatsoever? 
Well, I mean, if you want to think about it, Hitler took a lot. Hitler didn't take a lot of things into consideration. The Germans were winning World War One handedly up until they decided to open the Russian front. Wait, you're seeing World War Two? Well, World War One. The They're Russians. World War One, really. The Rus- They did the exact same thing in both World Wars. They were actually they were actually winning the war in the West, and they started a two front war. And there's actually greed. greed. Not even I, I don't know if it's even greed as much as just pride, like o- being overly proud, like because there. So the basic foundational plan for the the start of German World War One was founded in this thing called the Schleiflin Plan. Okay. And it was basically, it was a strategy to go through, I think it was, a certain part of Belgium or northern France, invade France, take over that, that section of Western Europe through, another, through a more series of calculated conquests, then after all of that you invade Russia. But one of the biggest tenets of the Schleiflin plan, and this was like this was named after the German general that came up with it. This was like the 1890s, I believe, uh-huh. maybe early 1900s. Before World had to be before like 1913. Okay, but uh, the the other big tenet was don't invade Russia first. Don't start a two front war because then that will tax resources too much. You'll be split between fronts, and it will turn into either a war of attrition that no one wins or an unwinnable war of attrition. Uh-huh. They did that. In World War One. what they did is they, they went with a modified version of the Schleiflin plan that took them through a more fortified portion of Belgium, which is why actually France didn't get conquered in the German Blitzkrieg of Paris. Because in World War One, basically if they had if they had followed the initial Schleiflin plan, World War One, at least France, probably would have completely lost to the Germans. Okay. Um, but, like, the biggest thing is, so first off, in World War One, what kind of fucked them from the start is they deviated from their initial plan and exactly the result that was predicted to be problematic happened. First off, they went through too fortified or too distant of a region of Belgium, gave the French time to respond that allowed them to basically, uh, it, it, it was a couple hours and a bunch of cab drivers is the reason Paris didn't get taken by the Germans in 1913 or 14, whatever. Really? Really. What did those variables? Yes. Cab drivers and Wells? Cab drivers and the Germans taking a different plan that deviated from their initial plan to invade France. Well, because uh, what ended up happening, because the French army wasn't, like, really fully assembled, so they were, like, like what I say cab drivers, basically cab drivers were just hauling ass all over the countryside, driving in soldiers into Paris for the attack. Today, that'd be Ubers. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Think about Ubers it. Ubers like, are winning us a war. That's great. France was saved in World War One by Uber drivers. <laughs> think about that. Uh, but, like... So go go forward to World War Two, and the Germans do the exact same thing. Same mistake. Like they, well, okay, they they fixed one thing. They effectively broke through France, but the problem is they didn't fix the second problem, which was starting a two-front war before you would fully 
finish the war in the in the West. Well, it, it sounds like they started that problem themselves. They by, did by starting a two-front war. What do you what do you mean by fixing it then? Well, no. What I'm saying is like the two two of the biggest problems that happened in World War One with the Germans was they deviated from their initial invasion plan of France, uh-huh. which ended up giving the French more time to respond. And okay, okay. It's debated that like those couple hours are what saved them. And then on top of that, they started while they were still struggling in the Western Front with France, England, etc. They started a war with Russia, and that was kind of like. Very, very long and drawn outly, but that was like their nail in the coffin in terms of what really led to them not being able to keep up. Right, right. Um, and in World War Two, so the initial Blitzkrieg, the invasion of France, and subsequent the rest, subsequently the rest of Europe, went very well. But they started a two-front war. Before they finished the other one. Yeah, strategically speaking, that just doesn't make sense to me. Well, yeah. Like, like, like conquer over here and then take it. If you want to conquer Russia so bad, do it Do it after you finish this over here. Well, and so, like, one of the biggest things that then also came into play was, like, they literally, like I was saying, like, they weren't ready for the cold. Their technology wasn't ready for the cold. So, like... Other it, soldiers. Yeah. So, like, think... One of the big German guns used at the time, a major German submachine gun, was this thing called the grease gun. Okay. It's called the grease gun because you had to keep it really well lubricated to fire, and like you've probably seen it in movies. It's like the stereotypical Nazi submachine gun. Okay. Problem in colder temperatures, grease would freeze. The AK-47, one of the like, and this was the period of time at which the AK-47 had been invented, and certainly during World War II. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. You can look it up. Actually, look that up. You should look that up. But, okay. Basically, though, the Russians, like... 1949, so it was a little bit after World okay. War II. Okay, but, like, uh, the thing about Russian weapons and, like, why I brought up the AK and this is... It's the best example of this design is, like... Russians had to design their weapons to work in any condition that they could fight in. Right. One yeah, of that's a necessity at that point. They had to. There was no choice. Yeah, like, so they couldn't furnish their army with guns that didn't work in the cold because it's like, where the fuck else are we going to fight? Right. <laughs> like, this is fucking Russia. Like, so the Germans came in and some of their technology, like, the, one of the biggest, pro- like, and also their tanks. The Russian tanks were designed to be able to function in the extreme cold. The German tanks, some of them literally froze in their tracks and just turned into giant metal death traps for the soldiers uh, inside of them. Yeah. And one of the, like, Germans used really, they were really big, especially Hitler. At the time, with his model of the army, he was big on using the tanks to enforce the Blitzkrieg. So that's a huge part of his strategy. Yeah. Just defeated right there. Then... Yeah. Not without firing a single shot. Like, that's the biggest thing about why the cold is such a factor. And all of these Russian invasions, like, they don't have to do anything other than last long enough to make it to winter. Which they already planned on lasting in that exact part of the region of the world anyway, so... Like, yeah. Literally, like... And also, I mean, just think about it. Like, the further you get into Russia, keeping an army supplied... Right, right. It's just getting harder and harder. Because, like I said, they burn everything behind them. There's nothing there. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. They were defeated by, by climate. Yeah. Essentially. 
And then the, the whole course of history has been influenced ever since. Yeah. That's crazy. Weather, man. <laughs> well, not just switch it up, but whenever we were talking about the honey badger, this is a question I was looking at last night. Uh, so if a turtle loses its shell, is it homeless or naked? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would naked and afraid. I would say, I would say personally, if the turtle found its shell over the course of its life and then lost it, it would be homeless. But if it's born with that shell, that's a naked motherfucker. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> I guess in a way it's naked and homeless too. Dude. At the sucks. same time. Simultaneously. God damn. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, I was looking up like hypothetical questions and that one came across. And <laughs> I, I thought it was hilarious. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, er earlier you were talking about uh, binary logic, and you said you do you do not oh, agree yeah. with binary logic. Which there there was somebody. Uh, so my, my buddy, I had him on yesterday for episode number uh, I think it was forty two or something. Uh, yeah, it was forty two. And he's an EMT driver, right? So he like sits in the back of ambulances or drives ambulances around. And he said that the test for EMT, what it does is it's either a pass or fail, and they don't tell you what like what you get like so it's completely binary like it's either you make it or you don't and you don't get a score you just it's yes or no for to get accepted into EMT school so in I, I would not agree with that at all well I mean like it's uh, so many cases in our society like things are simplified into one uh, one outcome or the other and I don't really get I guess I, I could say I get it because it's the simplest possible way to imagine a like multivariable situation is with only two variables. Right. But that doesn't in my mind that isn't fitting that isn't a fitting description of or perspective on our reality because like so when you look at it like have you looked into like quantum computing at all? I have not, yeah. Okay, so, like, the, the way computers are written now, like, right now, is at their base, base, base coding is what's called binary code, which is a one or a zero, which okay. basically, what that communicates, like, how the computer reads that is whether to turn on or off a certain circuit in a certain location. That's a lot of, it, it, this is off topic, but that's, there's a lot of backing to the simulation theory because of binary code apparently has been found at like the heart of physics, just all ones and zeros. But, but anyway. Well, and so that's, go, that's go, crazy. going into that, the thing is like, uh, like in the quantum world, like in the physical world, we can observe that kind of happening like you know a tv it's on or it's off you know yeah. like we like we've we've created honestly like things that satisfy the state of on or off or one or zero or yes or no exactly but like and why quantum computing if you've ever heard it talked about why it's like such a buzz thing in science a big deal so ultimately at the base level of our computing, there is the limitation right now of binary code that you can only tell a computer to do this or that. That's right. it. Like, you can come up with all these other crazy things to base off of it, but at the base level, it's this or that. 
Just taking an example of a biological system, our genetic code does not work that way. It is a four-variable system, okay. and while uh, so like it's A, C's, T's, and G's. Right. Okay. Okay. I remember yeah, that from yeah. biology. Um, like it's one of four things at all times. Now, mind you, once you pick one, like my genetics professor would kill me right now, but like I can't remember which. Uh, one bonds only with, basically they bond in, in pairs. So like, I think it's, is it A's and G's and C's and T's? I don't know. You can look it up if you want. But like, my, my point is. I think it's A-G. I, I think the T's are, yeah, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. But like, my point is, at like, at fundamental levels, when you look at nature, it doesn't work that way. It's A, C, G, T. Okay. And that's for DNA encoding. So does that mean yeah. there are 16 possibilities? Or very, like, if, if there are four, then, uh, I guess, combinations? Well, so, so think about it like a line of, like, so in any single space in the genetic code, uh-huh. so, like, mind if I borrow your notebook to draw a little, draw yeah, a little de- demonstration? So, like... Say we have a line of genetic code here, because there are two. Like our DNA is double stranded, so it has two sides. Right. But and then we have say a line of computer code. Doesn't have a corresponding side, but for all intents and principles, think about it like one side of a genetic code. Okay. You can have a zero, one, or that's it in any of these spaces. You know, you only have two variables that you can plug in. Okay. In any of these spaces, you can put A, C, G, T. You can put any of those four. So in any given space of data, you have four possible options for how to encode that data in, D- in DNA. Okay. In binary coding, you only have two ways. So think about it like in binary code, you have this, that. In like DNA, for example, what's considered by many to be a natural computer language, you have this, that, the other, and something else. Okay. You, you can okay. fill one data point with four different options instead of two, which allows for a lot more possibilities in terms of what you can create. Absolutely. So in quantum computing, going off of that, when you look at like fundamental particles, the number of states they can occupy greatly changes like there are some there are some models of physics where like the most the smallest most fundamental fundamental particles to our universe have almost infinite outcomes for what they can become so think about a computing system based on instead of this or that at one data point uh-huh. you have like 26 different things you can put into that one data point and think about how much more the realm of possibility. Yes. Wow. Like that's one of the things that's going to make AI a lot more realistic. Like, and I don't mean like a, something we've programmed to like have response. I mean something that is probably, honestly, going to surpass us in the next hundred years. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Like, like quantum computing is how. Quantum computing is like how the robot future happens. So is is it possible that it could be there could be infinite variables? If you can go all the way up to twenty six, you said twenty six, right? Yeah. Is it possible that it could go 
to infinite or to a hundred or well that's the that's the thing we're trying to figure out right now is like because I mean you know we understand binary circuits like that's just a basic electrical circuit does this is this on or off are we gonna like have to put something in between so that the current doesn't flow here we understand that so that's why it's fairly easy for us to extrapolate all this stuff using binary coding binary logic systems okay but we don't understand the quantum world fully yet. We know we've learned a lot about it over the past 100 years, but I mean to a certain degree we just don't have the technology to fully understand all of what happens. Like there's this so teleportation. Uh-huh. Like the theories for how to do teleportation have been worked out. Like the problem is in any real fashion, like doable fashion, it would be almost impossible just because of the limitations of our technology. Like, but what it essentially is, is how you get it to work is why information in our universe doesn't travel at an instant speed to a certain degree has to do with the fact that all of the particles that make us up have a slight, like every single one of them have just a very slight difference in their spin axis, how they rotate. Okay. And there's this thing called quant, and that basically that makes it so all the information that is us doesn't have the ability to just move instantly throughout space easily. Because uh, think about it like trying to float. You're trying to flow with a river, but you've got bricks for shoes. Like you're you're like like you're being slowed down. You're you're being slowed down. Basically, is the way is the simplest way to think about it. You have something forcing you to like weighting you against the current, just kind of resisting it without even doing anything, just by nature of what it is. Totally. If you perfectly align all of those particles, axes, and you get them into this state called quantum coherence, the information can move at basically the speed of light. Like, wow. you can move instantaneously. The problem is, the thing is... So say you put a person into quantum coherence and okay. transmit that data to a receiver, like basically the end, like say this is a teleporter we're talking about here, you know, the teleporter puts the person into quantum coherence. The question is, does it just transfer that information and what you get is a new person that's just been basically reconstructed at that point in space to be a perfect carbon copy of the person that you had? Like, is, is that, that are, are you destroyed? Like, when your body basically loses its form, because, I mean, that's kind of what happens, is uh, your body is losing its corporeal form and transforming into raw data. Right. Like. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Like, is that person that comes out on the other end you or just a read of that data? Do you think the answer would lie within memories? Like, would you hold the same memories? Well, that's the problem, is memories are, to a certain degree, physical structures in our brains. Virtually what we're doing, what you're you're talking about is that teleportation would be, let's say you're over in France right now, yeah, and then you you step into this machine or whatever, and then you're pretty much 3D printing yourself in, like, another country or wherever. Basically, yeah. Wow. Well, 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 like, that's the question, you know, is, like, are you actually being transmitted between those two points? Like, is that you? Or does it read all of the information from your body, transmit it instantly, and then just 
give you, you know, what you would get by compiling all of that data. And the thing is, like, you can't test that to a certain, like, this is where, like, we don't even know how to begin to have the technology to test that because you asked, like, can we test by memory? There are a lot of theories, leading theories right now in neuroscience that dictate that our brain, like the memories, our emotions are very heavily tied to physical structuring in our brains. So if you produce an exact replica of someone's brain, like basically, you know, when you transfer that data, if you perfectly reproduce their nervous system, they'll have those memories whether or not they're that person. Wow. Yeah, like, like that's one of the big, like, you know, <laughs> there's like a debate among physicists right now whether or not you can digitize consciousness. And a lot, like one of the biggest questions is it seems like all of this is tied to physically to the brain. How do we account for that? Like, do we have to, to do that? Do we have to physically take your brain out? Like, can we separate you from your body? Is that even possible? And like going off of that, like to give you an idea, I mean, like, that's why, like, we were talking a little earlier before we started filming about, like, how recovering from depression and PTSD, like, the things that have been shown to be effective are things that actually force you to form new neural connections, because those are physical phenomenon in your brain. Right. Like, those are physically formed neural connections that are making your brain process emotions a certain way or connect things to a certain memory. So are those same neural pathways and... The same chemical, biological makeup that you have in your mind, is that going to be recreated just identical? And then, it, you're right, is that the same person? Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> like, for real. That's, and that's, like, one of the biggest questions. Like, because, I mean, right now we're experimenting, we actually are experimenting with this with, like, individual atoms, and there's, like, the question right now, like, is that just a perfect copy of this atom, or is this that actual atom? And we don't know. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, obviously, I can't wrap my head around it. These people talking about this are a lot smarter than myself, dude. Like, wow, that's you, insane. Like, I don't. I honestly like. I don't think. Here's the thing about like really high level science, and this is how I figured out who I listen to, is like anyone that's super authoritative. Like, I know this is true. I kind of throw out as bullshit. Anyone who's um, like. Listen, this is the leading theory, and there's totally a chance this could not be true, but this is what we believe right now. But tomorrow, that could change. Because uh-huh. that's what a scientist really is. like More of an open book it, versus somebody who has their own ego tied to like their, their work, their science, yeah. their theory. Well, and that's why, that's why I think a lot of people, like, the people in mainstream society that do have problems with science, like... One of the, like, sometimes a lot of people's biggest complaints would be, like, a common example in the nutrition world, they'll be like, oh, you know, they, they said this was healthy just a couple years ago, now it's terrible for you, da-da-da-da-da-da, like, well, and that's the, that's the thing about science. That's the problem with taking science as though it's a Bible, like, you know, because whatever you want to say about religion or whatever, like, the Bible hasn't really been altered much, like, so that's just kind of, like, that's what I mean by that example is like, no, I know you mean, yeah, like, like a set, a si- set part of science. Yeah, science isn't a set doctrine. Science is a, science is basically a group consensus that from everything we've studied across the world and everything we've seen so far, this is what we together think makes up our understanding of the truth right now. True. But the thing is, like. 
when you like necessarily for that to continue to grow and develop, you have to have the mindset that like this could change tomorrow. Because I mean, Which, it requires open-mindedness with that curiosity for science. Yeah, exactly. Of and, the physical and natural world. Wow. And like that's why a lot of people have freaking problems. Is they're just like they keep changing their minds. It's like yeah, because we keep learn. Like we're going to. Everything is going to change as we continue to learn things. And there are going to be times where science comes full circle and we're like, oh, this was stupid. We've moved past this. And then we're just like, oh, wait, this is actually a good idea again. Like, there are going to be times where we think something's a great idea and just full on move past it. Like, all, all sorts of possibilities. So I'm writing down uh, all, these, all these topics for later. But... It, it, and science is extremely open to interpretation and extremely theoretical, and that's what I didn't realize until, like, one of my buddies laid it out for me one night. We were hanging out at his house, and, and I was like, so that's that's the correct way, right? And he's like, like you know, like, all science is just theoretical, right? Like, it's like the, uh, the Big Bang Theory. That's just a theory. Mm-hmm. You don't know for sure if that's actually what happened. That's just the universally accepted theory. Yeah. That's all it is. It's a fucking theory. Well, and, like, that's the thing, like, any good scientist will tell you. And, like, the reason scientists will, like, get pissed that they don't teach, like, evolution in schools uh, is just the fact that it's not, like, okay, things like evolution can, to a certain degree, like, be, I guess, they contradict certain people's belief structures, but I don't think in, like, science is very much about, like, you can't live in this world where your ideas are insulated. Otherwise, they're not going to keep up. I love that. I love that. I mean, like, that's the thing you get from studying biology, from studying chemistry, from studying physics. Like, the nature of the world around us, everything is change. That is the driving force of everything. Like, is just fucking change. Like, we are... If you want to think about it this way, we are a chemical reaction that just keeps on continuing itself. And the thing, if you ever notice about chemical reactions, is as conditions change, as you introduce new chemical elements, everything, the reaction changes. Right. Like, that's why we have evolved over years, is that we were a system designed to change as things come in. And, like, that's that's what really sometimes gets on my nerves about people being against science being, like, being taught. Is that scientists, like, okay, yeah, there's some people that are dickheads about it. And they're like, you should teach this like it's law. Da, da, da. But, like, most good scientists are going to say, like, listen, I don't think, like, you have to believe this is the ultimate end-all, be-all truth of reality. Because it could change tomorrow. Totally. But that doesn't mean you should insulate yourself from ideas that contradict you when there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that it's probably true. If you want to say, like, maybe they should throw in other competing validated by evidence theories, yes. But, like, the thing is, like, you know, it's a science class. Let, let them teach science. Exactly, yeah. Like, like, science... With no restraints. With no restraints. Yeah, like, science isn't about offending people's belief structures. It's just about learning how to question the reality around you and test those questions to find meaningful answers. And half the time, yes, those meaningful answers are going to be just more meaningful questions. True, true. 
Yeah, just like you were saying, like, we've made it so far into quantum mechanics, but, like, it leaves us with so, like, it makes us realize how little we know, and, like, once we figure that, that next problem out, it's probably going to lead us to how little we know again. Well, I mean, to, like, give you a concept of, like, how mind-fucky physics has gotten, so I was watching a video on this the other day, this effect called the quantum eraser. Quantum eraser, okay. Yeah, so there's this thing called the double slit experiment. I'm writing it down. You'll like it. But basically, it talks about how... Er, what was the, the eraser? The quantum eraser, and then it's based off of this thing called the double slit experiment, which is one of the most famous experiments in all of particle physics. I think I've heard of that before. Yeah, so as I describe it, you'll probably be like, oh, yeah. Okay. So... And we're live with Joel Getters, which is... This, this episode is a continuation of the last episode, number 44. I'm back, motherfuckers. <laughs> so so we, uh, we left on the quantum eraser, and you were going to explain the double slit. Okay, so... Wait, it's, 